bulletin, uh, you've got Acts 17 verses 1 through 9 in the ERV translation, which is my new favorite translation, but I'm not going to use it this morning. I'm at Charlene Crawford. Hi, girl. How are you? <laughs> no, come on up. <laughs> We've missed you. That's good to see you. Welcome to church. It's good to be with you. <laughs> um, I'm going to be reading in the ESV translation, which is your pew Bible. Uh, and, and you'll see why once I, once I get into it. So hear the word of God. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and... Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded... And joined Paul and Silas and did a great many of the, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, you have uh, caused these words to... Uh, be recorded for us. You have inspired them by your Holy Spirit. They are truth. And we pray this morning that you would send us your Holy Spirit to give us ears that are capable of hearing your truth. And I pray as well that you would uh, soften our hearts so that we might respond in ways that are appropriate to this truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Charlene, would you do me a favor? I mean, since you're back. Um, there, can you bring me one of those black pew Bibles? They're around someplace. So, uh, in your um, bulletin, the t- uh, the title of the sermon is "Another King, a Jealous God." Well, that's actually—it's not the sermon that I ended up writing. So we may do that sermon next week because it may be something uh, that I. Well, it's something that we still need to talk about, uh, but. There were some preliminary thoughts on this passage that kind of tied me up for, for a long while. So I'm going to preach through some of those preliminary uh, issues that are going on in this text. And if we get around uh, to the king stuff, we'll, we'll talk about the king stuff. And if we don't have time today, we'll get around to it next week. Okay. So we still are in the second missionary journey of Paul. And this is like the second leg of, uh, of the journey. Paul has left Asia, he's left uh, the East, he's left uh, the Orient, and he's crossed over into Europe. Uh, in previous weeks, we, we've met him there at the city of Philippi, where the very first European Christian converts 
are made, when he's in Philippi, which is a regional city, um, he's in a city that there are not enough Jews there to have a synagogue. Now, normally it was Paul's practice when he went to a new city to, to visit the synagogue because, of course, the gospel is first for the Jews and then it can be for the rest of the world. But he would always begin... Uh, with the Jews. And so now he's moved further down the road. He's on the road that leads ultimately to Rome. And he comes to the capital of Macedonia, which is called Thessalonica. It's still uh, the major city in that region today. And it uh, was large enough to have a Jewish population that was large enough to have a synagogue. And as was his practice, he goes into the synagogue and he goes there three weeks running... I don't exactly know how all of this worked, uh, but he's obviously permitted to speak in the synagogue and he spends three Sabbaths reasoning with them from the scriptures is what we read in uh, verse uh, verse 2. So what I want to talk uh, about this morning is about Paul as an evangelical evangelist. And I want to talk about evangelical preaching and some of the features of evangelical preaching. The three features that I want to lift up are, number one, that evangelical preaching is reasonable and it's rational. Number two, that evangelical preaching is based upon the scriptures. And then number three, that evangelical preaching is about the atonement. Okay? This is all going to be based on verses 2 and verses 3 of Acts chapter 17. So let me just step through those. And then if we have time, I want to talk about King Jesus for a little bit. So verse 17, uh, or chapter 17, verse 2, says that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. And this, this word reason shows up. Uh, in a number of passages, we'll see it in 1717 where it says, Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace with those who happened to be there. Chapter 18 verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Chapter 18 verse 19, he went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now, the word that's going on there is uh, the word that is, uh, it's actually the same word that's used in uh, the Socratic dialogues of Plato. Uh, this is uh, this is the word for a rational discourse, for, uh, we call it a dialogue. Um, and what it means is that the arrival at truth through the logos, through reason, or through uh, or through the word, okay? And so Paul, in his conversation with these people, is appealing to their intellect. I've said it a number of times, and I guess it bears repeating that we don't park our brains at the door when we come into church, okay? So Paul's appeal to the Jewish people in this synagogue is to their, is to, to their reason, to their intellect. There's a certain content that they need to be able to understand and that they need to be able to know. His proclamation is not irrational. His proclamation is not an appeal to emotions. Paul doesn't go into the synagogue and tell funny stories or tell heartwarming stories. 
Paul reasons with them. And the word that's used here is identical to the word that Plato uses to describe uh, the business that Socrates was in. Okay, We're going to have a conversation, we're going to talk about things, and through human reason we're going to come uh, to an understanding of the truth. Evangelical preaching is reasonable. It is an appeal to our intellect, to our rational capacities. Number two is evangelical preaching is reasoning about the scriptures. Okay, it's reasoning about the scriptures. Verse 2 says, Paul went in, as was his custom, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, or based on the scriptures. Paul's preaching is not about human philosophy. Paul's preaching is not a TED talk. Paul's preaching is not political ideology. Paul's preaching is not about aesthetic tastes. Paul's preaching is about one thing. It's about the scriptures. Let's take a look at the scriptures and see what the scriptures teach. Now, one of the reasons that we walked away from the PCUSA is is that the scriptures ceased to be the basis of their teaching. They understood what what Scripture teaches regarding human sexual ethics. And they said, yeah, we understand that. There's no way we can argue around that. But, you know, the Holy Spirit is leading us in a new direction. And so no longer was Scripture the basis of the conversation. And they simply walked away from being a church. Okay? We are a holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. That's what we profess as Christians, and we've professed it for centuries. And what we mean is is that our teaching is the teaching of the apostles. We don't teach anything new. There is not a new revelation based upon human philosophy or the latest political ideology. All we do is repeat what we see in the pages of Scripture, Old Testament fathers, New Testament apostles, And we preach that and we continue to bring that forward. We reason about it. We can have conversations about it. It is, in fact, the case that sometimes Christians of good conscience disagree about an interpretation of Scripture. We actually have a rather broad theological mix here in this congregation. All right? But what we hold in common is that the basis of our reasoning is going to be the Scriptures alone. Okay, we're going to talk about what do the scriptures say? How do we understand the scriptures? Not what does our political party say? Not what does the the latest pronouncements on TED Talk say? But what do the scriptures say? So evangelical preaching is reasonable. It's an appeal to the intellect. Evangelical preaching is reasoning about the scriptures. Reasoning about the scriptures. And third... Evangelical preaching is about the atonement. About the atonement. Verse, what what verse is that? Verse 3. Well, let me read 2 and 3. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures... Explaining and proving that it was necessary 
for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Okay, that whole conversation of why it is that the Christ would need to suffer and why he would rise from the dead, that's about the atonement. Now, one of the ways that we part company with our Jewish brothers is on the understanding of the Christ and the atonement and Paul's core message for these brother and sister Jews in the synagogue there at Thessalonica is about this doctrine, this doctrine of atonement. Let me read for you uh, a passage that Paul probably used in his conversation. This is Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, we read uh, this, this chapter during uh, you know, pretty much every Advent season, very familiar passage. But this would have been one of the passages that Paul would have appealed to. Paul, Paul was trying to, trying to explain to the Jews that the scriptures actually foresaw the Messiah being one who was going to suffer and die and then be raised from the dead. Now, they were all looking for the Christ, but they weren't looking for him to do that. And so what's he going to appeal to? Well, he's going to appeal to the scriptures, which they hold in common. So let's take a look at, at, at um, Isaiah chapter 53. I'm going to begin read. I'm just going to read through this. And th- this is just familiar and let it resonate in your ears. Begin at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace... Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We, like sheep, have all gone astray. We've turned, every one, each to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. This is the doctrine of atonement. This is substitutionary atonement. The people of God have sinned, but God loves those people that... He sends his suffering servant to bear the penalty for their sins so that they might be, so that they might be healed, so that they might be redeemed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, Who considered that he was cut off and out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and in his mouth there was no deceit. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. One of the lies that I've heard proclaimed by people who claim the name of Christ is that The crucifixion of Jesus was not part of God's plan. That the crucifixion of Jesus was just, you know, a horrible thing that had happened because the world is so corrupt. 
The doctrine of atonement teaches that it was part of God's intent and plan that his own son would be crushed for us. All right? That he would suffer for us. The Old Testament prophets already saw this. Not all of the uh, Jewish people understood this to be connected with the Christ. And so Paul draws the lines between what the scriptures say and he draws the lines directly to Jesus of Nazareth, whom they perhaps had already heard about. Okay, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Okay. So this passage and others, you know, uh, Paul would have gone to and carefully and over the course of several weeks explained why, you know, all of these prophecies are looking forward to a Christ who is not only victorious and bringing in a new kingdom, but who also suffers for his people, who offers also bears the penalty for his People. We call that substitutionary atonement. Jesus atones for our sin. Jesus doesn't atone for his sin. He was sinless. But his death atones for our sin. And the gospel message is that by faith in Jesus Christ, we no longer have to pay the penalty for our sin. Okay, The gospel message is not that Jesus was a wise man or a... Uh, a moral teacher. The gospel message is that Jesus was the Son of God and His death can pay for your sins if you have faith in Christ. That's the gospel message. And so evangelical preaching is reasonable, it's rational. Evangelical preaching is about the Scriptures. It's always based on the Scriptures. It's not based on human philosophy or the latest uh, popular ideas and evangelical preaching at its core is about the doctrine of atonement. He was wounded for our tra- transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for transgressors. That's the gospel. The gospel is already present in the Old Testament. And so the Apostle Paul is drawing these lines for these people. The people who are gathered in the synagogue there at, the, at Thessalonica, they're already believers in Almighty God. They're, uh, they're people of the covenant. Uh, well, some of them are, are pious uh, uh, Greeks, but uh, they believe in God and they trust the scriptures. And so they, they go to synagogue every week to hear uh, God's word proclaimed. Um, and so Paul in that environment uh, brings uh, the message of the gospel. The gospel, uh, the evangelical message is reasonable, it's biblical, and it's all about the atonement. Now, I want to talk about one more thing. Let me check, check on my time there. I want to, uh, maybe I just want to prefigure a little bit, and I, I think I'm going to want to spend more time on this uh, next week. I want to talk about uh, King Jesus. I want to talk about King Jesus. All right. In this passage, we see uh, the the townspeople go crazy. And they're going crazy because, with anger and with fury, they're going crazy because of what Paul is 
preached and what, what Paul has proclaimed. And you might think that this is rather strange. I mean, if someone came into your town and, you know, started preaching a strange doctrine, oh, you know, there was this guy and he died and then he came back to life and... In fact, he's king of the universe. How many of us would be up in arms? How many of us would round up in the marketplace a rabble to cause a riot and then go up to the police station and demand that the police do something? All right, That's what's going on here. And I think it has to do with this issue of kingship. All I want to say this morning is that when Jesus is king, nothing else can be king. Alright? When Jesus is king, everything else is underneath. Now we have this problem in this country, based upon our doctrine of separation of church and state, that we've privatized our faith. You know, that's fine. You believe that in your heart. Keep that in your bedroom. We don't want to know about that. Whatever you do privately. And there is this assumption... That in fact the state is sovereign and that under the state are all these little religions that are allowed to behave any way they want. The biblical view is is that our faith in Jesus Christ puts him at the top of the pyramid and everything else is subordinate to him. Everything else has to bow their knee to him. Okay? Every philosophy that we have, every politics that we have, all of the choices that we make with our lives, it all comes under the headship of Jesus. All right? I want to uh, uh, open this up a lot more uh, uh, next week, but there is something about this doctrine of kingship which it just makes people crazy. Because here's the thing. All of us have a king. All of us have something that we think is highest and most important. There's no way not to. It's just, it's a logical necessity. There's something that we think is most important. Maybe it's my prosperity. Maybe it's the promotion of my political party. Maybe it's my comfort. I don't know what, I mean, there are all kinds of things. Alright? But when somebody steps into the room and says, you know what? I'm the king. And you need to reorder your life based upon your submission to me. Well, it gets some people's hackles up. Actually, it gets all of our hackles up. Okay, all of us are born enemies to Christ, all right? And it's only by the work of the Holy Spirit that we get turned around and that we're willing to bow our knee, all right? To be saved, to have uh, received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, is to receive this gift of the forgiveness of our sins, by his atonement on the cross. That's step one, you know, but step two is, is that then the rest of our lives are spent as servants of the king. Okay? We're born again, not just so that we can get to heaven. We're born again because we're going to serve the king. We're going to serve the king all of our days of our lives here, and then we're going to reign with him in glory. All right? One of the great things about being a Christian is, is that our eternity is a, is an eternity of sitting in thrones with Jesus, and we're, we're going to rule this world. All right? Under his leadership. Okay? He's the big brother. But, but we will, we will reign with him. So, I'm gonna close with that and, and we'll, we'll look again at that passage, uh, next week. Let me just, uh, say, uh, in closing, I don't know where all of you are with King Jesus in your life. I mean, I know all of you have heard the gospel a hundred times, uh, in your life. If you haven't yet made a decision, like a conscious decision that, you know, I'm gonna, 
I'm going to believe this. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to ask him for forgiveness of my sins. I'm going to commit my life to the day I die to King Jesus. If you never made that conscious decision, I invite you to do that today. Okay, that's that's the kind of the, the turning point of your life. Call that being born again. All right, when we turn from one way and turn to another. First, you have to understand why the gospel appeals to your reason. You have to understand what is taught in scripture. And then after your mind understands it, your will still has to choose it. You can understand and not choose. All right, so if some of you are in a position of having understood, and maybe you kind of even affirm it, and you think, yeah, that, that's right, but haven't chosen to align your align your loyalties to Christ the King, I invite you to do that this morning. Let's do that even as we pray now. Father God, we just thank you for this testimony of of the church in its early days and its explosive vibrancy. We thank you for all of the, the people who heard the gospel and responded to it. We thank you for the ways in which you were at work in, in the mind and the heart and the intellect of Brother Paul to truly understand the, the Old Testament scriptures and to bring them to life uh, for these people who were living in Europe. And I thank you that that a number of them came to know you as Lord and Savior and, and served you till the end of their days. Lord, I pray that you would give us that vision, that you would allow us to see uh, that Jesus is both the sacrifice for our sin and also the, the king of our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to trust in that today. Amen.